Uh, even though the first, the opening verses of First Kings chapter one, they present David as a very feeble man, a very frail man who was nearly on his deathbed. The passages that followed that opening passage of Scripture, it showed him with renewed strength and vigor as he works to ensure that his and Bathsheba's son, Solomon, sits on the throne. It was frankly amazing as you read this, and if you read back through it another time, you read it in one sitting, you'll see it's almost a, a total transformation of this man who is so weak and frail and, and cold that he can barely get out of bed. But despite that flurry of activity, or perhaps because of it, our passage this morning is about his death. Now, if David had lived and died in our day, we might have heard the words, he was a flawed man at his funeral, which is true, but it's only partly true because when we hear those words, he was a flawed man, that is a gross, uh, I would say, a minimization of uh, the man that a person was in this life. The whole truth is that he was a man who committed such heinous sins that those would have resulted in his execution had he not been king. And we can't really say that David acted in ignorance because of unbelief, because there were clear instances of true faith before and after some of his most sinful behavior. And yet, and yet, we can be certain that when David closed his eyes in death, he opened them in eternity, looking upon the face of his Savior. But how? How? One of the things that we have not shied away from in our time in First and Second Samuel and in First Kings was looking at the ugliness, the, the depravity, the, the heinousness of David's sinful behavior. We haven't shied away. We haven't tried to make this man better than he is, better than he was. We have to look at him honestly, warts and all, and, and worse than warts in many cases for David. How is it then we can say with confidence that he opened his eyes and looked upon his Savior? Well, one way is because we, he's a member of the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He's right after Samson. We wonder how Samson made it there, but he did. Uh, Jephthah makes it in. Jephthah's a, a, a more courageous and, and, and holier-seeming character in the Old Testament uh, than, than uh, Samson or, or David was. But we can take this as conclusive evidence of his acceptance by the Lord. But even looking at the passages in First and Second Samuel and First Kings that deal with David, 42 chapters in all, 42 chapters in these three books are devoted to one man. David is shown to trust in God's promises over and over again. Especially God's promise that he would make one of David's sons his forever king. David clung to that promise. He put his hope in that promise. And in doing so, he put his hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, though he didn't know his name. He had faith in the promised son who was to come. And that's a promise that David clung to even on his deathbed, to his dying breath. But as he said to Solomon there on his deathbed, the son must pay close attention to their way. The sons must pay close attention to their way to walk before the Lord in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul. All of David's sons except one would fall, would fail. Solomon, not long after, he takes the, takes the throne. He has a good kingship for a while. And then he fails in a major way. He would fail to learn the kind of perfect obedience expected of the forever king. But one of David's sons did learn it. The son who came to save God's people from their sins. 
As we work our way through this passage this morning, I would ask you to to hold this thought uh, at the front of your minds. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, co-equal in power with the Father and the Holy Spirit, learned obedience to his Father in order to save sinners. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, co-equal in power with the Father and the Holy Spirit, learned obedience to his Father in order to save sinners. The sermon is divided into three sections. The first, commands he couldn't keep. The second, unfinished business. And the third, David at rest. Again, commands he couldn't keep. That's the first section of the sermon. The second, unfinished business. And the third, David at rest. So let's look at this first section, this first point of the sermon. Commands he couldn't keep. Chapter 2 opens with David telling his son Solomon that he was going, that David was going to go the way of all the earth, that death was upon him. And he gave Solomon several commandments that if he kept them, would cause him and Israel to prosper. And in many ways, Solomon did. Now, let's think about this for a moment. What was David acknowledging? David was saying, I'm going the way of everybody else. He acknowledged. He was ready. He knew he was going to die. He acknowledged it. We don't do as well with death. Our culture is death-averse. We do everything that we can to avoid death. We try to prolong our lives in ways that are probably unnatural and unhealthy. We do all kinds of things because we're afraid of dying. David wasn't. He, he looked at it with, with clear eyes. And he told Solomon he was going to go away. He told Solomon, here's what you can do to ensure that you have a long kingship, a long time on the throne. And in many ways, Solomon did. In many ways, Solomon was obedient. He built the first temple to the Lord, the one that David tried to build, and God would not let him because of the blood on David's hands. He was a man of war, not of peace. And so God brought along Solomon, whose name meant peace or peaceful. Solomon built a palace for himself. He built another palace for himself, all the kings who followed him. He had the Ark of the Covenant brought into the temple. Solomon became renowned for his great wisdom to such an extent that people from all over the Near East came to Solomon to receive counsel from him. Solomon amassed great riches, but ultimately Solomon turned from the Lord. Solomon receives, he has about 10 or so chapters devoted to him before his death. It's true that he wrote part of the Old Testament as well, but in terms of the number of chapters devoted to him, far fewer than the number of chapters devoted to David. But what was it that David commanded him to do in these opening verses? First, he told Solomon in verse 2 to be strong and to show yourself a man. Now, the version of manliness or masculinity that David describes is very different from how it's understood by many today. Uh, In some cases, we think of manliness as being kind of macho and uh, muscly and uh, pushing people around. Or or there's another version of uh, manliness that's, that's very metro and and kind of cool and whatever with tight-fitting jeans or something like that. (laughs) But David describes something very differently than how we understand manliness. He says in verse 3, Keep the charge of Yahweh your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. Solomon would show himself to be a man by being obedient to the Lord. That's what being a man means. It's not so much in how you dress, or how long or gray your beard is, or how muscly you are. 
Biblical manhood, if you want to say it that way, is being obedient to the Lord. Standing firm. Not caving under the pressures of what's being put upon you by the world around you. Being a man as opposed to being a boy or an adolescent is doing hard things like keeping the commandments of the Lord your God. Our society today, not just American society, the world, I think we could say, the world hates obedience to God's commands. The world despises taking responsibility for one's actions. But David is telling his son that is part of what being a man is. It's not the sum total of it, but it's at least a solid chunk of being a man. Being obedient to Yahweh. And then David reminds Solomon of the promise that God made to him in verse 4, saying that if David's sons would pay close attention to their way to walk before God in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, there would always be a king on the throne in Israel. Now, this sounds a lot like the, the great and first commandment that Jesus told the Pharisee when that Pharisee asked Jesus what was the great commandment in the law. You can find that in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 and 37. Jesus responded to this question, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And so what David is telling Solomon is really not that much different from what Jesus told that Pharisee, what Jesus tells us. In order to, to, for Solomon to remain on the throne, and for his sons to remain on the throne, he must love the Lord his God by being obedient to the Lord. The requirement was that he and those sons who followed after Solomon, that they keep all of God's commandments. And as we've said, as you already know, Solomon doesn't. He fails to obey God. He falls in a major way. He starts out strong, at least by some accounts, but clearly he's got a weak finish. And as a result of Solomon turning from the Lord after Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes king, the kingdom is divided. Israel and and Judah are separate once again. David was far from perfect. Solomon was far from perfect. Solomon's sons were far from perfect. So what is Israel? What are we to do? That leads us to the next section. We'll have to wait for the answer to that question until the end. Our next section is unfinished business. The next several verses contain David's instructions to Solomon regarding specific people and what Solomon should do with them. One commentator talks about this, this whole passage, these first ten verses, or at least the first nine of the ten, as, as really being David's last will and testament to his son Solomon. This is what David is, is calling upon Solomon to do. Now you can interpret David's instructions in a positive light or in a negative light. Commentators go both ways here. Positively, David is, try- is tying up loose ends by telling Solomon to punish Joab and Shimei for their wrongdoing against him, which amounted to wrongdoing against Israel. Wrongdoing against the king was wrongdoing against the kingdom because David sat at the head of that kingdom. He was at the top of that kingdom. He represented that kingdom. A more negative interpretation is that David harbored a bitter vendetta against these two men because they had sinned against him, and rather than dealing with them himself, he passed the buck to his sons, his son. Now it's possible, we have to admit, that both interpretations are correct to a certain degree. David begins with Joab in verse 5. He reminds Solomon of what Joab did in killing Abner and Amasa. Joab killed Abner because Abner had killed Joab's brother Asahel. In the battle at Gibeon, Joab killed Amasa during Sheba's rebellion after David had set Amasa over his army in Joab's place. And so David tells Solomon, 
kill Joab. He also wants Solomon to kill Shimei because of the curses he shouted at David when David and his household were fleeing Jerusalem ahead of Absalom's attack on the city. And even though David swore an oath to Shimei on his way back to Jerusalem, he wants Solomon now to punish him. David said, I will will not bring the sword down on your head. Now, in the other case, David asked Solomon to deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, because of the loyalty that he showed to David when he fled from Absalom. In the first two cases, it's the king's prerogative and duty to deal with people who have done harm to the king and thus to the kingdom. David, in one sense, personified Israel. He represented them. So to curse him or to have a complete regard for his orders was an affront to the kingdom. And as such, they should not go unpunished. However, in the cases of both Joab and Shimei, the time for punishment was right after they committed their offenses, not years later, and not by commanding his own son to do it for him. And so I think one commentator is at least partly correct, who wrote this. He is, above all, filled with the desire for revenge, and his successor is consequently given a a heavy workload. We know, we understand, that, that the best good works we do are still tainted with sin. The best thing that we do, even as followers of Jesus, even though we've been redeemed, we've been regenerated, we still have a mixture, at least a little bit of sin, mixed in with the good things we do, the good things that we think. And so it's not pushing it too far. It's not too derogatory toward David to say that certainly his motives were mixed for what he was doing. So I think the truth is it's both. These men had committed grievous sins and crimes that were worthy of death. But David was probably also motivated by a bitter grudge that he had not been able to let go. And so instruct Solomon in the case of Joab not to let his gray head go down to Shaol in peace and with Shimei to bring his gray head down with blood to Shaol. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a warning here for us if we're willing to hear it. Do not let anger at someone fester and grow into a deep-seated bitterness that leads to a desire for revenge. You've got two choices when someone wrongs you. When someone commits a private sin against you, You have two choices. You can either forgive them completely, putting away that sin by covering it in love, or you can speak to the person in the way that Matthew 18 prescribes. If someone sins against you publicly, it's not necessary to speak to them privately, though that may be a good idea in many cases, but you still have to follow Matthew 18 if you're unable to cover over the sin that was done against you in love. And so it doesn't appear that this is what David did in either of these cases. And the result is that he puts blood on the hands of his son. He gets Solomon to do his dirty work by giving him these commands on his deathbed. And that brings us to the third and the final section of the sermon this morning, David at rest. Verse 10 says, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Now, interestingly, the author says David slept with his fathers, which could mean, it really ought to mean, that he was buried with them in the family cemetery. Except that with David, he was buried in Jerusalem. That's the city of David, not Bethlehem, where his fathers would have been laid to rest. 
The phrase slept with his fathers is a figurative statement which could also be taken spiritually. David was gathered to his people in the Lord. When we die, those of us who are in Christ, we will see our Savior. But we will also have a joyful reunion with those who went ahead of us to be with the Lord. Family family relationships and friendships will be perfected in eternity, not erased, not totally done away with. We will get to see our loved ones who went went to the Lord before us. But if it's true that David's last act before he died was a sinful command for Solomon to exact revenge on David's enemies, how did he sleep with his fathers? How did he end up in the hall of faith? Did a priest rush rush in after his death and give him last rites? Or right before his death and give him last rites? Well, I don't think last rites had been invented in David's day. So how did David go to be with the Lord? Sure, if he's just a flawed man, God might have been uh, been willing to overlook his sins. But we know better. He wasn't just a flawed man. He was a deeply sinful man. He deserved death. How? How did he sleep with his fathers? How did he go to be with the Lord? Here's how. Though David never really learned obedience, nor Solomon, nor any of the kings who followed after them up to the nation of Israel's destruction, David had a son who did learn obedience. And his obedience was the key to David's salvation. I want to say something and be very careful here because you might misinterpret my words and I want to be careful. This does not mean that we get to sin and commit all kinds of sin licentiously with with great abandon in the hopes and the expectation that grace is going to abound all the more. May it never be. We aren't given freedom to sin just because we know that Well, David sinned right on his deathbed. He didn't have a chance to repent of those sins. He didn't have a chance to confess those sins. He went to be with the Lord. I can do whatever I want, and I get to be with the Lord too. That's not the way it works, brothers and sisters. If if your desire is to sin all you want and know that you get a a get-out-of-jail card at the end, you don't understand the Christian faith. You're You're not there. That's not what this means. Our scripture reading from Hebrews 5 contained this in verse 8. Although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, not David or Solomon, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, admittedly, this this passage is not speaking about Jesus in his capacity as king, but as high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was the, the priest of El Elyon, the most high God. Now, Melchizedek is first mentioned in Genesis 14, where he brings out bread and wine to Abraham, and he blesses him, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. But Melchizedek, as it says there in Genesis 14, was also a king. He's the king of Salem. His name means king of righteousness. And so Melchizedek is a priest and a king. And Jesus is the same. He too is a priest and a king as well as a prophet. Jesus is also David's son, descended from David through his biological mother Mary, as well as through his adoptive father Joseph. And we read there in Hebrews 5.8 that he learned obedience. And as one author asks, how is it possible to say that the omniscient son 
In other words, the son who knew everything, how is it possible to say that he learned obedience? Well, this can only be the case if the relationship between the son and the father prior to the son's incarnation was one of co-equal power and glory. In other words, if the son was unequal to the father, if the son was subordinate to the father prior to the incarnation, there would have been no need for him to learn obedience as the incarnate son of God. He already knew obedience because he had been eternally obedient to his father. That's not the case. But this is where we begin to to realize that understanding Trinitarian, Trinitarian theology is essential to understanding the gospel. Because if the Son of God is not equal to the Father, there is no gospel. There is no good news. And that's because if the Son of God is not equal with the Father in every way, He is not fully God. He does not share in the one will of the Godhead. In fact, that would mean that there are three wills within the Godhead, which would mean that there are three gods, not one God. And unfortunately, that's a pantheon. With the Father sitting at the top of the hierarchy like Zeus. And the Son of the Spirit expected to do His bidding. However, that is not the God of the Bible, thankfully. The three persons of the Trinity have one will. They are co-equal with one another. Only a Christ who is fully God can save man. Because only God has the power to save us. But He also had to become a man. Otherwise, he could not stand in our place. Jesus Christ is fully 100% God and 100% man. However, in the incarnation, when the Son of God became man and was given the name Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation, he did subordinate himself or submit to the will of his Father. But that is because the God-man, Jesus, has two wills. A divine will with a human will added to it, just as his divine nature had a human nature added to it. And so we can say in all truth, with all accuracy, that Jesus was obedient to his Father in every way. The Son, who never had to obey, because the will of the Father is the will of the Son, is the will of the Holy Spirit, learned to obey. And it's a good thing he did. Even in the garden, when Jesus asked his father to take away this cup of wrath from him, what were Jesus' words? He begged his father to take the cup of wrath from him. But he said, thy will, not mine, be done. And he accepted that cup of wrath. Without Jesus Christ's perfect obedience to the complete and perfect will of his father, neither David nor Samson, nor Jephthah, nor Abraham, nor John, Peter, Paul, nor we have any hope of salvation. If Jesus Christ was not perfectly obedient, had he not learned obedience, we would not be saved. We all, like David, will close our eyes in death with unconfessed, unrepented for sins, though hopefully not quite as egregious as David's. None of us has been or will be perfectly obedient to the will of our Heavenly Father. But Jesus Christ, the Son of David and the Son of God, was perfectly obedient. And if you believe in Him, that record of obedience 
it's counted as your own record of obedience. Your father looks at you who, who, as one who is perfectly obedient in every way. Your sins were laid upon Jesus on the cross. His obedience is reckoned or counted as your own. Just like it was counted as David's own. Because David believed. He believed in the one who was to come. David's son. Though he didn't know his name. David had a son who actually did learn obedience. And his name is Jesus. And that is good news. Amen. Let us pray.